You're listening to the Game Street Office podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I'm joined by Brendan Sinclair, Jeffrey Russo. We're going to be discussing some of the biggest stories from the past week from across the games industry, but first, we wanted to draw the attention to industry efforts that are supporting those affected by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, If you check out the article that's attached to this episode, um, or the episode description on your podcasting device, you should find a link to a roundup that we've been doing of everything developers and publishers are kind of announcing or promising to support those affected by this. Um, A number of studios, for example, starting with uh, This War of Mine developer 11-Bit Studios, have said they're going to donate a week's worth of proceeds from game sales or you know DLC sales uh, to Ukrainian Red Cross is the most commonly the the organization pick, picked but there are a few others as well other companies are making just straight donations to certain organizations and several companies are just kind of sharing links to where people can make their own donations and kind of encouraging everyone to kind of contribute to these aid efforts. Um, if anyone listening wants to make contributions themselves, please do check out the link. Uh, it's a good place to start. There's links throughout there. Or there's certainly um, directions to where these people have put their statements who also have links. If any companies are listening and you have a way to raise funds to help those affected, please consider doing so. The industry effort has been good, but I, I think there's there's even more that can be done, hopefully. so. Um, but yes, we wanted to kind of address that from the off. Our first topic for this episode is a DICE Summit keynote delivered by EA's Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer, Laura Meal, uh, who said that video game company leaders that fall short of basic standards should be removed. Um, so this was reported on by IGN. She said, let's face it, there have been some rough headlines. That is an understatement. Stories about negligence and lawsuits, all stemming from leaders who have failed to uphold standards that we've come to expect. She later added, if companies can't figure this out and fix this burning issue, we don't get to move forward. We don't get past go. Um, this story did the rounds a lot last week, and I think that's good. That, as she said, like there's been a lot of conversations over the last few years about harassment, abuse, misconduct. Stories of some truly toxic work cultures that can only be damaging to not just the company, not just the company, obviously, obviously the company, but more important, like people's lives, like the amount of people affected by these things. We've discussed it at length on the podcast. We've covered it at length on the site. I don't think we're going to stop covering it anytime soon. I think this is all still going on. We seem to be in very rough transition. Um, but yeah, like I, one of the questions that always comes up from this is the leaders. Like it's it's the leaders are you know it's their responsibility to kind of be dealing with this and and how much do we trust them to do so um, you know the obvious elephant in the room is mr mr kotick over at activision blizzard like the trust anyone has in him rectifying the culture that's at activision blizzard varies um from middling to none <laughs> so i wanted to get your um your thoughts guys on like how so it, it's it's simple to say like the leaders need to go but realistically is that is that how realistic is that as a solution it's i think it's realistic and uh a perfectly reasonable thing to to ask in a lot of these cases um in a in an organization you want accountability right i mean that's what everyone is is promising here when they're saying like oh well we're, we we need to fix problems with our organization we haven't done everything perfect what what they're really saying is that they're going to to make accountability be a key part of, of the organization going forward such that anyone that, you know, 
doesn't live up to their standards. Anyone that that crosses a line, anyone that harasses their their coworkers or their employees, they will be punished. And I I, I think like I, I'm a, a believer in leading by example. And I don't think a leader who refuses to hold themselves accountable um, is is one that is going to to be terribly effective in having an organization that holds others accountable. Um, and and I think that there is this is kind of a a recurring pattern in the games industry right now is is that we have. Uh, a leadership class that does not seem to be interested in that accountability aspect of leadership. Um, just to, to go through a list of studios that have had um, these exposés or cultural issues or, or toxic workplaces um, from, from recent years, you got Ubisoft, Yves Guillemot is still there. Activision Blizzard, Bobby Kotick is still there. Quantic Dream, David Cage and Guillaume de Fondemer are still there. Riot Games, uh, just this last week, Niccolo Laurent, the CEO, when their whole world exploded in 2018, uh, he, he announced that they were having a co-founder and co-chairman of the company, Mark Merrill, come back to step into the most critical leadership role in Riot's new chapter uh, as president of games. And he is the, the previous president of games, Scott Gelb, is um, notorious for, for being the person who would fart on employees and flick their testicles. And, you know, a, a lot of that stuff that the, the frat boy culture that Riot Games was, uh, that Riot Games was criticized for and sued over, um, settled a lawsuit for $100 million recently. Uh, a, a lot of kind of the the tone setters of that culture are still there and they're welcoming them back in like M- Mark Merrill and Brandon Beck, the co-founders, they stepped away a few years ago a little bit um, just to be co co-founders, co-chairman. Uh, but they're bringing Mark Merrill back into the day to day things in this most critical leadership role, even though like they were part of creating the cultural problems at Riot in the first place. Even even if if Merrill and, and Beck weren't um, flicking employees' testicles or farting on them, uh, they were still creating the culture of this this studio and shaping it to be so homogenous. Like they they made a big deal about how they were they were going to pay people to walk away if they if they came into Riot and they felt like this isn't really a good culture fit for me. They were so so laser focused on having. A culture where everyone was on the same page and there was no, you know, deviation from that, uh, that they would just pay people, you know, a quarter of their annual salary or whatever portion of their annual salary to just leave this new job that they just had because they didn't feel comfortable there. Uh, What kind of culture are you going to get when you do that? Like, it's probably going to be a lot like the culture Riot Games had that's caused so many problems. Uh, Twitch, Emmett Shearer is still there. Bungie, Pete Parsons is still there. Paradox, Frederick Wester is there. Razor, Min Liang Tan is still there. Team 17, Debbie Bestwick is still there. Rockstar, Sam Hauser is still there. NetherRealm Studios, Ed Boon is still there. And I just named a whole lot of people. And I have varying estimations about these people. 
and how complicit they were in the problems at these companies or or how earnestly they've been trying to improve matters or how likely how possible it is that they could be in leadership um, and and successfully turn a company's culture around and, and make it a better place to work um, so I'm not I'm not unilaterally slamming every every person that I just mentioned but I am pointing out this pattern of companies in the games industry where all this bad stuff's going on and the leadership that was there that oversaw the bad stuff going on that created the cultures that led to this bad stuff being able to go on unpunished for so long they are still generally there i mean you you'll have instances where um Yves Guillemot is there but the head of hr or the head of the the games editorial department has been booted because they were inconveniently involved in the troubles or activision blizzard um you you've got j allen brack is no longer at blizzard he had to fall on his sword to protect bobby kodak uh so there's there's some accountability sure but like that that top leadership class like is is seems to be basically impervious and that is deeply concerning and frustrating for me as as someone following and and watching the industry um because i i don't think that unaccountable leadership can create accountability within the ranks effectively no i i agree i agree like, and it, the, the the difficulty is like when when these problems go all the way to the very top and i don't mean that into i mean that in two ways like both both like in, in terms of if the ceo is part of these allegations if they are like directly involved or directly complicit in these sort of toxic behaviors this toxic culture or if they are they if you as you say like they've simply they have overseen the creation of this culture and and by extension allowed this to happen if it, if it extends to the very top who removes the top my understanding is like it's usually like the board of directors for example would be the ones to kind of like you know step in and you know demand a change of leadership but by and large how much can you rely on board of directors, particularly with big companies like Activision Blizzard or Ubisoft, etc.? Because I imagine there's often this belief that it's that leadership, it's that leader specifically, that has led the company to the success. All the companies we're talking about where there are there's a toxic culture there are by and large some of the most successful game companies in the games industry. Activision Blizzard, Ubisoft, two of the biggest publishers in the AAA space. Riot Games, absolutely huge because League of Legends is huge. So when you have these leaders on top of these like massive companies that are just turning around like ridiculous revenues every year and showing growth and all these things that keep shareholders and directors happy, like the motivation to change the leadership isn't there. And that's something we need to address. To, to both your points, and speaking more to Brendan's point, she obviously brought this up because truth of the matter is you, you can't speak about being a leader in something without addressing, you know, the, the elephant in the room. You know, a, a problem that's been known within the industry literally was on the news on rotation in every major outlet. So, so obviously she decided to speak 
speak about that and yeah it, it it does fall on the leaders and i'm someone who thinks about something uh very very simply if you had a problem and let's not even think about industry let's just think of like a retail store and there was a problem with the team logically what happens or what normally happens is like you clean house so going back to the whole matter with leaders if and or when the problem reaches all the way to the top of a company and even if you're making all this money and this is why I'm a very I'm a highly skeptical of all these statements that come out from these supposed leaders that quote unquote didn't know anything or however much they they claim to have known is that when you have a problem there's a degree of how much you may have heard and again I know I'm speculating I don't want to accuse anyone of anything like that of what goes on in your your company it's like how much hands off are you and I, I i honestly forget which of those leaders that brendan mentioned where they i believe they were in a conversation with a shareholder and the shareholder asked the question well do you plan to step down given you know the degree of how bad this was and that question was yeah, swept under that the was rug. that was eve gilmo thank you that was right after the ubisoft thing and that's an example of, of something I think about is that we're, we're speaking about an industry that's changing, but its leadership, I, I, I don't think it's keeping pace with these supposed changes because I, I, I think there's a great deal of scrutiny that I myself think of when, you know, you see these problems, it's well reported, it's been going on for years you have personal accounts of, uh, of of enough people speaking about something that gets traction. So you, you think about what about the leadership? And then we get these statements and then, you know, there, there's a cycle. And then, you know, I step back and I go back to what she was speaking about is that, you know, she flat out said that leaders have a responsibility, whether or not that responsibility is to realize, okay, maybe I'm not the best person for this job and I should step back. Um, or give the keys to someone else um, who's better. Yeah, that that investor question um, that was posed to Eve Gilmo right after their scandal broke, I, I think was really um, just got to the heart of the matter. The question was basically either as the CEO, either you knew about these pervasive problems at your company and you ignored it, which is not good or there were pervasive problems at your company and you were unaware of it which also is not good uh, and and i think these are basically the two options that all these executives are are facing and as the top executive in the in a company like you are responsible for this stuff <laughs> you you are where the buck stops because it can't stop anywhere else. Ultimately, it's on you. Now, that doesn't mean that like, you know, one instance of sexual harassment in the ranks and you need to be ejected. Um, but it, it means how you respond to that instance of sexual harassment in the ranks uh, is, is key. Because all of these, all of these exposés and press reports that we've seen that is not that is not the first time that these issues have come up no one virtually no one has something like this happen to them and says you know what i'm going to go to the press 
I'm going straight to the press and I'm going to risk my, you know, my career. Um, if, if my name gets out there, then, you know, it's going to be awfully hard for me to find a, a, another job. If my next employer thinks like, oh, they're just gonna, you know, smear us to the press about stuff. Uh, maybe it's a legal risk they're taking on because they signed an NDA about things. So like the press is, and, and obviously the press does not always get results. You don't get to control your message when you go to the press and, and tell them what happened to you. You have to, to hope that the person you go to communicates the, the events in the way that you would like. Um, but there is no guarantee of that. So like going to the press is an imperfect solution and it's one that people aren't going to take until they have exhausted their other options. And those other options are generally like, you know, you go to HR, you, you make complaints up the chain of command in the organization. You keep it in-house until your in-house options fail. And that is that is one of the the clearest issues I see here is that this has happened again and again and again with so many major companies and it keeps happening. Like these people aren't looking around at the rest of the industry and seeing these these reports come out and these scandals and saying, hey, maybe we should be listening to our employees a little bit better when they tell us like this is not good and this is not working for me. Uh, maybe we should be taking these these claims a little more seriously. And because they aren't doing that, we we keep getting this same thing happening over and over again. And it's frustrating because I, I, I know these these companies were given an opportunity. They were given a chance to to squash it quietly, to handle it appropriately, to fix things on their own. And and time and again, they did not. And that's when it winds up in the press. Possible exception would be uh, if, it, if it stems from a lawsuit. If it, if it stems from, you know, an, an employee who just goes, you know, straight to the courts for, for legal remedy because, you know, because it was clearly illegal and they have the goods on, on whoever it is that they're accusing. They can actually benefit from a lawsuit. You can't you can't really benefit from going to the press other than maybe having a sense that some justice was done. But if you look at that list of people who are still in in positions of power at these uh, at these studios, even that, you know, the odds of, of you going to the press and getting justice done in a way that you find satisfying and appropriate is is a long shot i would like to add how can the industry at large be better if the leadership during these uh let, let's say unsavory times are still around yeah how, how how can we trust that the industry has gotten better when we look around and it's this the same people in in charge who who you know oversaw these problems in the first place Next up, we want to discuss reports that Activision has delayed the planned Call of Duty for 2023 into the following year. 
So this is a report that came from Bloomberg. Uh, it suggested that due to a recent unnamed entry not meeting performance expectations, um, Activision has, has decided to push a Call of Duty out of 2023 into 2024. They didn't name the entry, but it is worth noting that Vanguard, uh, so last year's Call of Duty, was said to have underperformed during Activision's latest financial results. Um, and that engagement for Call of Duty Warzone declined in 2021. Uh, Activision is reportedly going to release a new free-to-play online Call of Duty next year. Rumours are it's Warzone 2 um, instead of a premium one. But the delay, if true, and if it sticks, uh, would mean that 2023 is the first year without a full-priced Call of Duty, without a pre you know, paid Call of Duty since 2005. Now, Brendan, you've been predicting the fall of Call of Duty for some time now. And in fact, you wrote an excellent article a short while ago about these uh, the, the, these slightly fallible predictions. Yeah, so this is an opportunity for me to, to kind of like say I told you so, which is always fun. Um, <laughs> after their third quarter results last year, I, I wrote um, a This Week in Business column about like whether or not Call of Duty has finally peaked. Um, which I've thought many times in the past, like, okay, this is as big as it gets, and it, it's going to be going downhill from from here. Uh, and I've been wrong a, a whole lot. But the, the trends in the last year or so um, around Call of Duty have been pretty concerning, I think. So when Call of Duty Mobile launched in October of 2019, that was a big... Uh, big shift for for the franchise because it was the first real free to play game. Um, it was uh, that 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 was a big shift for the franchise because it was the first uh, real Call of Duty style experience in a free to play package. It, it was um, going on to mobile and was an instant hit. Like Activision's monthly active users went from thirty six million the quarter before the Call of Duty launch to 128 million with the Call of Duty launch. Just well over triple the the, the numbers in, in one one quarter. It's just flip a switch and like, wow, we got a massive active user base. Um, the next quarter after that, Call of Duty Warzone launched. Free-to-play console and PC version of the game. And instantly the monthly active users dropped down to 102 million uh and that that's basically in line with the kind of the expected quarter over quarter drop they would have gotten from a big holiday quarter to the the you know january quarter uh when they, when all they had was premium offerings so that was that was kind of the first indication that like it's 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 a little odd that you launched a big new free-to-play game one that is successful like call of duty warzone was and the engagement the the active users number actually like not only does it go down it goes down just as much as it would in a normal nothing but call of duty black ops or modern warfare kind of year uh now that that could be part of like call of duty mobile not keeping its its users up or or uh some overlap in the way that they count the, the active users, like, oh, well, all the act all the Warzone users were also playing the premium Call of Duty anyways. I 
There, there's a few things there. Um, and when 2021 came around, Warzone had had been hitting its stride. It seems uh, the the engagement around Call of Duty was was a, a little bit better. Um, it had it peaked in March, the March quarter of of 2021. Um, but this last holiday quarter was uh, pretty concerning. I think instead of having like a holiday quarter bump as the Call of Duty series had been getting. Uh, it was the worst engagement number of any quarter since the launch of Warzone. It was 107 million monthly active users. And that's that's part of it is going to be like Vanguard being a World War II game and a Sledgehammer game, neither of which uh, traditionally have, have worked out all that well for Call of Duty. But I, I think the big worry here is, is just cannibalization. Um, like we've we've mentioned on the show before, when when you see a big shift like digital to physical, premium to free to play, one time purchase to subscription and streaming, it's it's not unusual to see an initial impact of that be a net positive, even though the longer term one uh, is absolutely cannibalization and one form is undermining the other. Uh, so like when when Steam had left for dead um on on sale and this they they had a deep discount uh on steam sales and then they noticed that hey left for dead physical copies their sales were boosted in the wake of the steam sale and the steam sale is basically the only reason that they could have so they were saying like hey it you know creates engagement around the brand and then people on other platforms maybe hear about it more because their friends are playing and talking about it and then they buy it at full price physical and and like yeah sure that worked for a little while but if you were if you were thinking like hey steam is not cannibalizing um physical pc game sales which was kind of valve's point they were making in releasing that information uh you are 100 percent wrong because pc physical game sales now look at it compared to steam and it's it's you know like there are how many how many would be steam competitive competitor storefronts right now are, are doing better than physical PC game sales. Uh, and I think we're seeing the same thing with Game Pass. Like uh, the, the first wave of Game Pass games, they were, you know, talking about like, hey, we launched day one into Game Pass and we actually saw our non-Game Pass sales uh, exceed our expectations. Or we were added to Game Pass and we saw a bump in our non-Game Pass sales. And part of that would just be like, hey, the marketing around it gets better. But I think as more people look at Game Pass and say like, hey, games I want are on there, I'm going to sign up for it. The effect of that goes away. And uh, depending on how Game Pass goes, you'll start to see some just flat out cannibalization. Like Halo Infinite's physical sales figures were not what you would have expected from a Halo Infinite um, because it was also launching day one into Game Pass. And, and, and even before Call of Duty Vanguard came out, like the, the, the quarter before, Activision Blizzard had mentioned that they were seeing lower revenues from the Activision segment and, they, and Call of Duty specifically. And they blamed it on the previous year's quarter benefiting from shelter-at-home mandates in, in the pandemic. And saying like, oh, those mandates are ending, fewer people are playing, and that's, that's what hurt the numbers. But at the same time, Blizzard and King's revenues jumped 22% each year over year, while Activision revenues sank 
So the you would think the shelter at home mandates would have similar impacts on uh, on games across the board, um, but there were, they didn't really give any explanation for why Activision was so much lower while Blizzard and King were were higher. The the explanations I could think of possibly like uh, King it's mobile you can play games on the go so maybe that was not in big deal but but at the same time it's like we did see a lot of boosts to mobile game engagement when the pandemic and shelter at home mandates came into effect and then blizzard launched uh, diablo 2 resurrected that quarter do i think that that would have been accountable for such a big swing i don't um i could be i could be pegging the the demand for diablo 2 remakes uh wrong but um yeah i I think i think they're just these like flashing dashboard lights on the call of duty franchise right now and i think like i (laughs) i think this is the right call by by activision here um I, i i think it it's interesting now because you're giving infinity ward with the next modern warfare you're giving them another year to work on the game and then you're not going to launch two call of duty premium games in the same time uh same year so treyarch then is going to get another year to work on what i assume is another black ops game uh and then three years from now does sledgehammer get another another shot at at call of duty like, will there be a Call of Duty World War II game three years from now? Will Will Sledgehammer just be straight Warzone and support studio for Treyarch and Infinity Ward? Like, I, I think that's that's a big question mark. But apart from that, I, I think that this is a, a needed break for the Call of Duty franchise. And I think it will give them a chance to better understand... Um, what kind of cannibalization effects Call of Duty Mobile and Warzone are having on the premium games? Even at a basic level, like the the idea of the annual franchise is it's such an old concept in this games industry now. Like there was a time where most franchises, most big franchises, were annual. Like Call of Duty, obviously, being a bigger one, but like. You had a Medal of, a Medal of Honor every year, a Need for Speed every year. Activision had like multiple annual franchises. When they had like the the Marvel licenses, um, and Sky Skylanders was every year. Guitar Hero was every year. Tony Hawk's was every year. Spider Man was every year. James Bond was every year for like two or three years. Like every time they had a license, they would they would try and get one out every single year because like back in the day, the way to get that injection of cash was to get people to buy a full priced game every year if you didn't then that affected your performance for that year um that just isn't the case anymore like there are very few annual franchises left or certainly very few that are still doing well call of duty is one although maybe it's not doing as well as as we now learn um there's one notable exception that we're going to discuss a little bit later but you look at all the others like you know assassin's creed was annual for a good long while that's now every two or three years in order to enable longer development times because games development has become that much more complex like because the expectations are bigger gamers want you know 
more polished experiences, larger experiences. I mean, in the case of Assassin's Creed, they want these vast open worlds, apparently. I'm not expecting an open world Call of Duty. Please, dear God, no, not an open world Call of Duty. But Call of Duty obviously lived and died on its um, multiplayer. And that multiplayer has shifted away from annual you know, annual games that come out and everyone buys the latest, uh, the latest game because... You've got the service model, which has been going for years, and this is obviously what we're talking about with the um, cannibalization from things like uh, Call of Duty Mobile and Call of Duty Warzone. Like players now expect to just download one game, ideally for free, and more content will come to them. They don't want to, spend, or they don't necessarily expect to spend, you know, sixty, seventy dollars every single November, October, you know, to to get the latest content. I think the exceptions that that still work here for reasons I don't fully understand are like sports. I think sports feel somewhat separate. So FIFA, I don't imagine FIFA is going to stop being an annual franchise because it is still like one of the best selling games every year. Granted, even with its struggles, Call of Duty is still one of the best selling games every year. But sports feel slightly different in that the expectation, i.e. you're going to buy a game and you're going to play football, that doesn't change from year to year. With Call of Duty, you expect... You expect the same basic experience. I expect to run around and shoot bad guys, but the narrative, the locations, the setting, the atmosphere, the multiplayer map, the modes, the features, like all these different things, like they kind of, you expect something different and big and new. And with FIFA and yeah, other sports titles, you just expect better. You don't expect them to suddenly overhaul how football works because football is football. That expectation doesn't change. So I think sports games can survive. But even then, things like um, Pro Evolution Soccer, that wasn't doing well enough. That's now not annual. That's now eFootball, the free-to-play game that already is in trouble. Like, just the, the idea of, like, the fact that Call of Duty has been every single year for well over, well, approaching 20 years now, like that's just not something that works anymore in this service driven industry where players aren't necessarily expecting to buy the same title every single year like we we did a, a poll with um consumers like uh, late last year asking like whether or not people are going to be buying vanguard and i think a chunk of people said like no due to franchise fatigue that they were tiring of call of duty because it is largely the same sort of thing every year. Like my, my experience of Call of Duty series has been hit and miss. I've dipped in and out and nothing, I've, I've gone five years without playing the Call of Duty and as soon as I go back into like the next one, it's like, aha, nothing really has changed here. Like, yeah, just the, the idea of annual franchises just seems like an increasingly outdated concept and finding ways to engage people with a brand without without requiring to buy a full price title every single year is definitely something Activision is long overdue in looking into. I also can't help but think um even with these, you know, business decisions, um how much of that, if at all, is that affected by, you know, what's been ongoing and the Microsoft acquisition? Who's to say? But I, I, I think that's something to also keep in mind. Maybe that has something to do with I, I don't mean to speculate wildly, but I don't know. Maybe there 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 was a temperature check, additional one maybe, after that. And that's how this decision also came about. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, the, the thing with Microsoft is, is sort of looming over this whole um, situation because, you know, like I was asking about... Um, 
a sledgehammer and what happens with them. And like, that's going to be dependent on Microsoft probably, right? Assuming that that deal closes, uh, is, is Microsoft going to have a different approach to planning their call of duty portfolio than, than Activision would. Um, and I, I do actually think that this, this move, um, to, to give the series a break, it sort of, fits with microsoft's um approach and strategy a little a little more than the annualized franchise one i I think if um if microsoft is is going to keep pushing game pass then having a call of duty service that is forever accessible through game pass would be more I don't know, in keeping with Microsoft strategy than than having these big annualized premium releases, which aren't really going to move the needle on Xbox that much, um, but gives the other platforms something something to to you know an attractive new hit game for them. On the other hand, maybe they figure that having you know, here's here's something that you can play on PlayStation if you pay 70 bucks for it, or you can get it for quote unquote free on Xbox with Game Pass. Um, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't actually thought about how they would uh, present that that value proposition to the user differently. But like I could kind of see them going either way with that. Activision apparently like taking this as a time to to rethink how they approach the series and obviously have a bit of a break. Um, usually when that happens, it, it leads to kind of an overhaul of a series. So, you know, to use the Assassin's Creed example I used earlier, um, the result was Assassin's Creed Origins, which turned what had previously been, you know, a kind of an open world city-based uh, stealth game into essentially The Witcher. What do you guys think they can do to overhaul modern warfare? Because we've not really had a dramatic change to the formula since the original... I said Modern Warfare, I meant Call of Duty, but I was thinking Modern Warfare. Modern Warfare 2007 was the last time that Call of Duty had a serious overhaul. So it's been a while. What can they do? I'm not obviously not expecting like a, a Breath of the Wild style, you know, right down to the core concepts of the series. But I'm trying to imagine what they can do, even with longer development time, what they can do to overhaul it completely, you know, to revamp it significantly in a way that, freshens the series again because it's it's become it's one of those series that has refined itself so much and iterated on itself so much over, you know every year and again that comes down to that annual that annual um release cadence like the fact that every year is just that ever so slightly bit you know like sharper and finer and you know tighter what can they do to just completely just revitalize it because i'm stumped i'll be honest well they went battle royal with with warzone right? they did yeah and that's something i mean that's did that's they do that with black, different was it black experience was it black ops 4 that had what was it, what was it? Oh, it was black, a battle royal mode in it previously blackout I can't remember the name blackout of it. wasn't it yeah, I, blackout yeah because i tried that and and was awful at it but yeah that 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 felt different but again like the mechanically that was basically playing call of duty in a genre that they nicked like they didn't, it didn't feel as as big an overhaul. Modern Warfare, I think, was the one that like 
I have to confess, I've never played the original Modern Warfare, but my understanding was like, you know, it changed things like, you know, like regenerative health and stuff like that. It just, it just gave it mechanically, it gave it a complete overhaul. It, you know, really ramped up the effort in terms of the storyline and the campaign. The multiplayer with the, the progression mode came in. Like, the, I can't think what there is left because they've been adding in so many ideas from other things like a, a battle royale mode. I can't think what there is left that they can, they can add in that can, that can revamp this. I, I think like for me, the, the call of duty difference has like always been production values. Now I, I don't, I don't play a whole lot of first person shooters. So that's, you know, <laughs> that opinion is not really uh super well-grounded, but it's it's always looked from the outside to me like they can throw so much money at it and they can give it that you know triple a blockbuster production values sheen and sell it on that in a way that so many of the competitors can't really um yeah and that's that's something that you know the 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 line goes up you know the the bar for what makes AAA look impressive enough for people just continually elevates and until we kind of hit a uh, a point of diminishing returns on on graphics which you know maybe maybe we're we're pressing up against that now as it is um yeah that that's always seemed to me to be the the avenue of innovation for for call of duty and I don't I don't really know what um what they're going to do differently but I I also don't necessarily know that they really need to do something differently like we're we're talking about a series that has thrived for I'm going to say 15 years like ever since the original modern warfare came out Call of Duty has been sort of like the big franchise in gaming if grand theft auto wasn't releasing that year um and people did not get sick of it 15 years you know like like people had kids the year modern warfare came out and those kids are now like playing call of duty games and you look at them playing it and you're like well i mean it's m-rated but you know parents can do this they make their decisions for their own kids. It's 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 not absolutely horrifying to see a kid born when Modern Warfare came out playing a Call of Duty game now. And and that's that's deeply weird to me and suggests that this um this experience of, you know, shooting people <laughs> has not worn thin. You know, people are are not tired of it and that they're there will just kind of much like the experience of, you know, throwing Hail Marys in Madden seems to transcend generations. Like, Call of Duty is something that can just... It may have peaked, but I, I, I think that there is, is still, like, a durable, viable business there just in churning out the same old, same old kind of stuff as you go on. And, you know, update it with best practices, steal game modes as they become popular. I don't know if it needs a fundamental overhaul, though. Yeah, it may not. Um, to Brendan's point, I was thinking 
I originally what I was going to say is they could, you know, possibly look at what their quote unquote competitors are doing, but that that's the thing. Do they really have com- competitors? <laughs> um but more so to the to the larger question, I don't think um I don't know what a, a major um revitalization might look like. It it like Brendan said, you know, the tried and true model is still working. <laughs> uh the only other thing I could think about is that they probably lean more to into um what they've been doing with their characters. But again, I don't know how that really translates into the larger, you know, battle royale esque type experience. Um, but it, it's a good question to think about, and and I guess ultimately they'll have to answer that. But you know, they they, like Brendan said, they have reached a peak, and now it's just sailing along. <laughs> there are two things I can point to where I know Activision Blizzard uh, hopes to to push Call of Duty to you know the next level, and uh, one of them is is esports. They've got the Call of Duty League, and and if if esports ever really did kind of take off and become a um, self-sustaining business for companies instead of a uh, excellent marketing addition, then uh, I, I, I could see how, you know, they would look at that and say like, yes, this is, this is what will propel uh, Call of Duty to another, another level. And, and then the other thing that um, Activision Blizzard has kind of, hoped for with call of duty is just transmedia expansion like a lot of people have forgotten but they they did announce a call of duty cinematic universe (laughs) and that was i think that was like six years ago now that they announced it so uh, i don't i don't think like (laughs) any kind of video game movie i'm instantly super skeptical about um when you take call of duty which is just like the most boring military paste of narrative that that I'd I'd ever kind of seen. Like I don't know. I would rather watch the movie Shooter on a loop than than see Call of Duty cinematic universe stuff. Well, um, there there was the rumor. There was the rumor that Dwayne the Rock Johnson is going to be in a... He's been hinting that he's going to be in a video game movie based on a badass franchise that he really likes, and the, the, the assumption is Call of Duty. And... J- joy. D- yeah. So, <laughs> like, uh, that's going to be a very different tone from what I would have assumed. Like, I would assume the Call of Duty cinematic universe would be, you know, that Black Ops, Modern Warfare, super po-faced, you know support our troops oh my gosh this stuff is so heavy the conspiracy goes all the way to the top uh grim dark nonsense but if you're getting the rock in there it's gonna be a lot more playful um and that doesn't strike me as as kind of matching the call of duty tone um but hey, who who am I to argue with um, the person who is in the movie adaptations of Rampage, Spy Hunter, and Doom? 
Coming soon, the Call of Duty movie starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Jack Black and Kevin Hart. Um, there's one there's one other area they can go in that doesn't necessarily fix the problems of the, the, the mainline series, but there is... There's always been the thought of can they make a Call of Duty for kind of that 12 plus, 16 plus audience, the Fortnite audience, like the much like EA did with Battlefield Heroes back in the day. Like, can they do a Call of Duty in that style? I don't know if they can because that audience is already playing Call of Duty with, with due to poor parental guidance or poor parental understanding of how age ratings work. Um, so I don't know how much of a demand there is for a, a kid's Call of Duty. Um, I know there's merchandise. There's plenty of merchandise for a kid's Call of Duty. Um, but, yeah. Mm. Just lean into it. Call of Duty babies. Call of Duty babies, yes. Just hurling just hurling rattles as... at each other and you know shooting pacifiers out of a modified Nerf gun. Maybe. As horribly offensive as you can get with it. Absolutely. Why not? Last thing we want to discuss is the recent Pokemon Day Pokemon Presents. Uh, mostly updates on established games. So the recent released Arceus uh, was is getting a patch. Uh, there's various updates for the mobile games like Pokemon Go, Pokemon Cafe Mix, Pokemon uh, Pokemon Masters X, and Pokemon Unite, which is also available on Switch. But the big news, of course, was Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. So this is the next uh, mainline RPG. This is the ninth generation of the the core Pokemon RPGs. Not much has been seen apart from obviously the starters because you've got to you know got to get the hype up before the cuddly toys come out and the merchandise. Got to build the new mascots. And um, the the main thing that we know so far is it appears to be open world. So there's lots of like sprawling landscapes, and they're talking about towns with no borders that seamlessly blend your journey together, or something to that effect. Like certainly most of that quote was word for word. Um, my main takeaway from this is like is it's it feels very soon to already have another generation of Pokemon. Like I know that Sword and Shield came out in I believe 2019, so it's been a few years since a mainline generation. But we've just had Legends Arceus last month, which is a big sprawling open world game. We've just had Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, uh, the remakes for Switch, which were in November. Which means that if this comes out, this is almost certainly going to come out in November as well. Like they've released in the same week of November every year since 2013, I believe. So to have, assume this release in November, within one calendar year, or sorry, sorry, within one 12 months period, we will have had the Diamond Pearl remakes, the uh, Legends Arceus, and now these. That's assumed there's no other spin off that we don't know about. Um, I just I, I looked up, I looked up this I looked up the uh, the release dates for all the big mainline games. There has been, with the exception of twenty twenty, which was the pandemic year and uh, the year that they released the DLC for Sword and Shield, and twenty fifteen for reasons I still can't work out. With the exception of those two years, there has been a mainline Pokemon game, so a new generation or a remake of a previous generation every single year and every single November. <laughs> Well, every single November since 2013, but every single Q4 since 2009. So there was us talking about annual franchises again and again. I keep forgetting that Pokemon is an annual franchise. There is almost always, there's only two years in the last 
I can't do my maths. That's more than ten, though. Like, um, you know, nearly twenty. Like that. The, there hasn't been a mainline Pokemon. Can someone give Game Freak a break, like a, a rest, a, a, a vacation, or something? Yeah, that's 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 a lot of games to be doing, <laughs> and and I think that, that that Pokemon it could probably use a break. <laughs> I mean, like we just had uh, Legends Arceus come out, and like the big takeaway from the CritCon that I got about that was that it it felt you know like oh it could have used a little more time in the oven. Same thing with Sword and Shield, you know. The it was the expansions. It wasn't until the expansions came out that that people felt like, oh, okay, this is kind of what it was supposed to be. It doesn't feel as as empty anymore or rushed. Um, yeah, I, I think you've had enough um, signals from the like critical reaction to these games and the player reaction to these games that uh, maybe you know maybe it's it's time to like give them uh, a little bit more space so that they can instead of you know rushing out something that leaves people saying mm, there's potential but kind of you know it, it looks rough around the edges here and there um yeah just just kind of avoid that and then then produce a a more polished piece of work that people will appreciate more and in theory sell better i i recall reading an article where there was a comment that the developers game freak they they very much like to think they run themselves um like a indie studio but given all the information that james shared with us um the math isn't mathing as it were (laughs) because um these games by by no measure are small and 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 given the fact that they are cohesive to the degree that they are when they release it is uh the word i'm not uh, i'm not trying to use the word miracle but but it's to their credit and like brendan mentioned i i i got sword and shield on release and it felt more of a it felt more like an experience once the expansion um areas were released because it felt more like a a full game not saying that the you know standard game was it fun but i i certainly think given how popular the franchise is they could take a couple of years on honestly i i honestly didn't think after legends i honestly thought we were going to see something like a two-year gap while they were deciding to do whatever they were they were doing um and especially since um, I remember uh, around the releases prior to and after Sword and Shield, as um, the development team, you know, made some comments about how the transition was to, you know, make a console game at that time and, and what, um, you know, the studio just had to go through to, you know, get into that. I just thought, okay, well, it's it's a learning process, y'all don't really need to release something yearly and yet that has been the case so i i, I always wonder out what decision is going into that because the franchise is still highly popular the show is still being watched the i don't know if either of you have been to any of the pokemon stores it's still packed you're gonna see folks of all kind of backgrounds in there 
um, kids and families, you know, I, I don't quite understand why within a calendar year, like James said, we're getting, we're, we're seeing all these releases, especially when they're, you know, Brilliant Diamond was a remake of an older title and Legends is something newer. And now we're getting what, what I'm assuming is, is going to be the, the different um, focus for the team for mainline games as we get um the newer titles it, it it's very odd to me i i it, it feels as if they have to put out these yearly releases but for a franchise so big and it has been so has been so alive for well over 25 years now i i, I don't understand i it, it it honestly they could take a couple of years off and <laughs> I, I, it's really hard for me to understand, especially when they said that they try to operate themselves as an indie studio, because that's a lot of back-to-back -back work. Even if you are using auxiliary development teams and, and helping, what have you, it, it seems really count, kind of counter to that whole thought. Yeah, I mean, they're they're kind of used to like they were they were coming from the portable development world before, like like churning out the um pokemon uh, game boy game boy advance ds 3ds games on a almost annual basis that was impressive enough but then to take that that operation and then suddenly like okay now we're making you know 3d console pokemon games now we are dramatically rethinking the way these things work uh, with Arceus and and the this new games um, sort of mix of mainline Pokemon stuff and, and and Arceus implementation and and it just seems like you're you're trying to do something so ambitious like you should probably take a little bit more time with it have some other studio release you know a remake of Pokemon Puzzle League or something um this this year if you, if you just need something to kind of keep the brand active and fresh but like i i yeah i i i am someone who has never played a mainline pokemon game and i would be interested in jumping on board at some point but i you know i i thought that was going to be with um pokemon let's go but the reviews were kind of like hmm. and i figured okay i can pass this isn't the one uh same thing with sword and shield same thing with arceus and and it's it's sort of like you know personally as a fence sitter i'm just waiting for that okay this is the one this is the one you got to play um and and i think that they they could probably deliver that a lot easier if they weren't having to churn these things out as quickly as they are hmm particularly like they've been trying to experiment with the formula for years now um it was sun and moon on the 3ds where they they really tried to overhaul it so they dropped all like the gym leaders and the the elite four challenge and it was all about like trials and you know you didn't have to use your pokemon's moves you could just call on pokemon to like ride and cut and stuff and they just they, they basically changed the structure of it so it wasn't the typical you go to eight eight gyms and then you go to the elite four and that's it you win like they tried a different structure and again 
mixed reviews. They then reverted to that for Sword and Shield, but they experimented with this wild area, this open, this mini open world to see if that worked. Um, but like, and, and you know, Sword and Shield have done well. But when you look at how fast like Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl sold, like they sold 13.90, yeah, 13.9 million units within, I think it was what, three months? So it, 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 within their first quarter, like that's nearly as many as the Let's Go games have sold within, you know, like three or four years. Like they're already in the top 10 best selling Switch games ever. And they're only 10, I say only, but like they are, they're, they're only 10 million behind Sword and Shield. Like, there's a real divide on the fan base and like some fans clearly just want Pokemon to never change, but that is not realistic. Um, some fans want it changed completely. I want like, I, I, you know, I want a, a, a Legends Arceus, start, sorry, Arceus um, style game on a, on a larger scale. So the idea of Scarlet and Violet being this big open world you know, Pokemon RPG, that appeals to me. But the fact that it's come so soon, I'm now like, I'm not convinced... Legend Arceus has not even been out a full month yet, and yet they're already announcing like the next big open world games. Like you can't possibly have learned enough from Arceus and from the reaction to Arceus to make this what you want it to be and what players want it to be. Like it's just the the machine that is Pokemon churning out everything like because it's not just games either like Chris was talking about this earlier and Chris has got an article that's going to be on live on the website shortly after we finish recording this episode because it's sitting in the wings waiting for us to read it um Chris has got written an article like but we were talking earlier it's not just games every year obviously like there's new trading card packs and there's new series and there's been movies and there's like Pokemon is this giant entertainment franchise like more so than almost any other games franchise and all of that needs to be like boosted every year by new releases and new toys and new you know new ways to engage the fans like and usually the core of that is that you know the core of the franchise is still the games so it's it's not just the games they've got to keep up with is everything else like you know that you, you we need we need a new game with lots of new pokemon so that we've got new characters for the anime show like it's yeah, I just, I, I, I wonder how Game Freak do it. Like I was looking this up earlier, I was shocked to um, read that Game Freak apparently only has a staff about. I, I saw mixed reports, but it's less than two hundred staff, is what I read. Now I grant you, I don't know, I, I don't imagine things like, you know, um, Brilliant Diamond, Shining Pearl, or Sword and Shield are as complex as say, I don't know, like a, you know, an Assassin's Creed open world game. And I keep, on, I know I keep on saying Assassin's Creed, but like, you know, those games are put together by hundreds, if not thousands, of people. I know Pokemon isn't on the scale of that, but the idea that less than two hundred people, and sometimes I've read like around one hundred and fifty people, are churning out these games with these expectations every year, that can't be healthy behind the scenes, surely. I, and, and that goes back to the earlier thing that I mentioned. I don't know to what degree um, do they have, you know, like contract staff or, or or what have you. Because obviously we know that they 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 do. The studio does expand. Uh, I I think the art director for Sword and Shield was was someone new to the studio, for if I'm not mistaken. But again, yeah, it, it's it's. I'm 
I don't know what the work schedule is like, but but something I I want for our listeners to think about. I'm I'm, I'm thinking where I in the shoes, and again, I'm I'm just assuming I don't know what it's like, but you know, say that you're a developer, you just finished helping launch um, Legends, whatever your role may have been. Perhaps it may have been um, battle animator or or um, the map uh, designer. And, you know, you have that reprieve. Um, but, again, obviously, games are being developed for a long time. And then you're told, hey, we need you to now help us with <laughs> releasing this by the week of November, what, 16, 15? What? <laughs> it, I don't know. It, it's just something that just popped into my head immediately. That is all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find previous podcasts on the podcasting platform of your choice, and you can find more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. And I'm sorry for the dog barking in the background. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, it wouldn't be a GI podcast without her.